Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Pentagon keeps tabs on the status and attitudes of military spouses. Its biannual survey asks about satisfaction with military life, finances, employment, and a list of other factors. For what leadership learns and how they use it, we have the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Military, Community, and Family Policy, Patricia Barron. Ms. Barron, good to have you with us. Hello, Tom. I'm really excited to be with you today. All right. And the latest survey is out in the field, fair to say. Correct. It currently is being fielded, and we're hoping that many spouses have received it in the mail or are learning more about it. And is it, by the way, is it a mail survey that they fill out with a pen and pencil and mail back, or can they do it online? They can totally do it online, and there's also a QR code that we have that they can scan to make it really easy for them to do so. And give us a sense of the scope. I mean, how many military spouses are there? Probably most members have a spouse, I would think, or the majority. Well, more than half of our military service members are married. Therefore, we're looking at about 600,000 active duty military spouses. Wow. And what is your, historically, the return rate that you're getting, the participation rate in the survey? We actually did uh, pretty well the last time we fielded this. The percentage went up uh, a bit more than we have had in the previous iteration. So we're excited that we're going to be able to increase that percentage even more. So we're trying to get to about 25% return rate, which would be fantastic. Yeah, that's a really projectable sample if you get, you know, 150, 200,000 or so returns. Absolutely. And every single one of those returns tells a story and we are anxious to hear about it. And do you get a good geographical distribution? Because, you know, a spouse in Okinawa may have different concerns than a spouse in Paris Island. Absolutely. We send CONUS and OCONUS. And I would also say that while you're taking the survey, you're able to tell us exactly where you are. Got it. And what do you ask, actually? What are some of the key questions? What's important to us is to really hear from our spouses about their current status of their satisfaction with military life. What types of things can we do to increase the quality of life that they're experiencing? And, you know, I'm a 30-year active duty spouse. I certainly grew up in the Army as an Army spouse. Currently have a daughter that's an active duty spouse and a veteran. And so the discussions that I have with many, many younger spouses are important to me. But having this survey fielded is, is the best way for the DOD to get responses back from the field. And we really use the information that we receive to, to look at our current quality of life programs and make adjustments as needed. And that brings up an interesting question. If the couple, if both spouses are in the military, are they both military spouses and therefore they can fill out the survey? You know, I have had active duty spouses, mostly females, tell me that they receive the survey in the mail. And so they're an active duty service member as well as an active duty spouse. So perhaps the answer is yes. Yeah. Interesting philosophical question, I guess, because they're a spouse and a military member and both sides are, both both of the couple. Give us a sample of the kind of learnings that you say received in the last round that were significant enough for, say, the Pentagon, the brass to wake up and look at this and maybe take action. The last time that this survey was fielded, we did, we did something really interesting. We asked two open-ended questions. 
And so we were able to receive qualitative data as well as quantitative data. To tell you the truth, those uh, open-ended questions gave us a lot of insight into the current status of, of how spouses were feeling about their military life. For the most part, I think that we heard that there was satisfaction with military life, but there were certainly some points of what I would say pain points. Childcare is always something that comes up, just not having enough childcare available to those spouses that want to be in the workforce. Speaking of workforce, you know, UPCS, so many times throughout your military spouse's career, that maintaining a career, finding employment can be very, very difficult. So we heard that loud and clear. We also heard an awful lot about work-life balance. That's something that, you know, young generation really values. And we took that into account. And so what have we done with Let's just take those three topics, for instance, when it comes to childcare, spouse employment, and work-life balance. Certainly with childcare, besides the uh, military construction bills that have come out that look at, you know, building new child development centers in the near future, we also need to look at the now. And one of the things that we realized was that we hadn't looked at the childcare workforce in a very long time, and we needed to see if we were competitive still with the childcare market. And we took a deep dive into that, came up with an awful lot of ideas on how how to better develop that workforce so that we can get the best people, you know, to come in entry level and then stay with us and hopefully, you know, grow with us into leadership positions. We're speaking with Patricia Barron. She's Assistant Secretary of Defense for Military Community and Family Policy. And do go on. You were talking about some of the results and what the Pentagon has done about it. Exactly. So uh, as I mentioned, the child care uh, workforce development look, um, we're proud of looking into that and, and hopefully we'll see some great outcomes from that. The second thing that I would say is, uh, again, looking at military spouse employment, really excited about the military spouse career accelerator pilot, which is a fellowship that we're doing with industry where we are paying for 12 weeks of fellowship time with different businesses across the country. And we hope that at the end of those 12 weeks, military spouses will get offered permanent positions. And that pilot is working out great. We're seeing close to 84%, 85% offering of permanent positions with those uh, industry partners. And it's going gangbusters. And we're in year two now. And uh, that's been received very, very well. We're learning a lot about the types of employment that spouses are looking for and the types of skill sets that industry partners are looking for. So that helps us as well. And then uh, I think I mentioned work-life balance. Uh, where does the military community family policy come into play? Well, we own a military welfare and recreation policy, MWR policy. So I've asked our team to look at what opportunities are out there for families to get together when they do have time off. Are we looking at outdoor recreation? Are we are we doing more in that space? Or are we making it so that families can come together at certain places on the installation? I want to come back to the question of careers because one of the difficult challenges over the years has been licenses that don't transfer from state to state. In some sense, people that are, say, I'm making this up, computer programmers are more portable than someone that does manicures where you need a license from state to state that doesn't transfer. That's absolutely right. I myself, I'm a registered nurse, started out that way, and I have seven state licenses that I've gathered throughout my husband's 30-year career. Uh, and so we know that licensing, reciprocity, and portability is incredibly important. What ended up happening last year on the 5th of January, actually, I remember that because that was my anniversary day. The president signed the 5th of January. We had new legislation that basically asked the state to provide a license reciprocity to spouses uh, when they PCS into that state. Now, states are still uh, looking at what that means to them and how they're going to implement that law. But in the meantime, our Defense State Liaison Office uh, has done incredible work around 
interstate compacts for different career paths. And we see an awful lot of success there and hope for more success. And one of the issues other elements of the military have struggled with is the housing problem areas where the housing is substandard or contractors operate dumpy apartment buildings or or the military itself does. And then moving contracts, that can really be a bugaboo and they're having trouble getting that all redone through the contracting mechanisms. Does it ever get frustrating to see these things come up on the survey and yet you don't really control military housing or the moving contracts and so forth? How do you project the results to make sure that you can say, hey, brass, listen to this, look at this. I mean, you are brass, so maybe you're at the table. Uh, That's exactly right. What I would tell you is that we take all the information and we don't just keep it to ourselves. We share it with every one of our DOD colleagues that have skin in the game, equity, uh, the ability to make changes. And because of the survey results that we received on a lot of different issues, we're able to take it to uh, the different departments within the department, if you will, and give them a heads up that this is this is starting to really bubble up and we need to get very serious about looking into it. And we have. There's been an awful lot of new policies that have been put in place to get after the housing crisis, which, as you know, happened about four or five years ago. There's been a lot of work done around that. And when I go out and I visit with spouses at different installations, I ask specifically about how things are going in some of the areas that I'm not responsible for, just so I can bring back that updated information and share with my colleagues. And by the way, does the survey take data about gender and race and those kinds of things so that you can sift the data and attitudes according to different demographic pieces? Uh, We do in the demographic section of the survey, but we don't specifically ask about DEIA. No, but can you tell, say, whether women have greater issue with a particular topic than men or black people have a particular attitude toward a given parameter versus white people or Hispanic people, that kind of thing? I believe if we were to really parse out the demographic information and compare it to answers, obviously we everyone can be very uh, secure that their answers are private and um, and actually not anything that we can get back to and say, oh, this person said this thing. It's 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 a very secure survey in that respect. But overall, we can see if enough people have answered in a certain demographic, uh, we can kind of tell that there might be something that we can glean from those specific demographic categories. But I would say overall, uh, just to remind your audience and our fellow military spouses that that's why it's so important to take this survey. And so the survey can be found at dodsurveys.mil. I'll say that one more time, dodsurveys.mil. Because everything that you tell us is important. And the more of you that take it, the better we can look at different specific areas, as well as demographic areas to see where we can make some changes. Any other big topics we should know about? Yeah, this is a really good news story about some of the changes to policy and programs that we've done based on the results. One is the pet transportation policy that just went into place that allows for pets to be transferred during a PCS, and then also dependent care flexible spending account for our military families. Good to know that Thor the Labradoodle makes it to the new base. Patricia Barron is Assistant Secretary of Defense for Military Community and Family Policy. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Tom. And again, let me say dodsurveys.mil. The more we can get folks to take the survey, the better off we're going to all be so that we can increase quality of life for all our military families. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Tune into the Federal Drive wherever you are. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.